0: to send a very happy birthday message to two of my patrons over on Patreon, Brandy and Gretchen. I hope you both have an amazing year. Finley Park, Illinois is one of the fastest growing suburbs of Chicago and the site of one of the most infamous unsolved mass murders. Two employees and four customers of Lane Bryant were killed, and though evidence was left behind, there have been no arrests in 13 years. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome, welcome back. If you're new, welcome. Remember to subscribe or follow in your podcast app if you want to know when new episodes come out. And if you want to know when new videos come out on my YouTube channel, head over there to subscribe. I generally release two episodes a week. As you're listening to this, there is an after show that I just posted on my YouTube channel for this case. There are some visuals to go over for this episode. You will absolutely be able to follow along this episode without the after show. Consider it a supplement. I will leave a link in the description, or you can just search for Crimeline's True Crime on YouTube. This episode was originally suggested by Michelle, so thank you for sending it in. I do want to thank Jess for helping with research on this. A lot of the coverage used was the Southtown Star, which is Tinley Park's local paper. We also use the local ABC affiliate, ABC7, quite a bit. Let's start with a little geography lesson. Tinley Park is a suburb of Chicago. It is just 30 minutes south of the city. In August 2006, a Lane Bryant store was opened in Brookside Marketplace, which is an outdoor mall. It's got your TJ Maxx. It's got your Target. It's one of those big outdoor malls. If you're unfamiliar with Lane Bryant, it is a women's clothing store that focuses on larger sizes. The smallest size they carry is a 10. At the time the crime took place, February 2008, the store had been there for about a year and a half. 42-year-old Rhoda McFarland was the store manager. She grew up the oldest of five children. After she graduated high school, with honors, of course, she went to community college for a short time before she enlisted in the Air Force. Rhoda worked as a nurse at Andrews Air Force Base for three years. Before she left active duty, she ended up going into the reserves. As a civilian, she worked a few jobs that are pretty different from each other. Before she got into retail, she was a supervisor for a gas company, but she was also an ordained minister. For a period, she was an associate pastor at Embassy Christian Center, ministering particularly to young girls as a mentor and role model. She also did some work in a prison in Louisiana. When the pastor of the church moved to Texas, the church and some of the congregation followed, but then there was a split in church leadership due to some disagreements about how they were running things, and Rhoda left her position. Rhoda's move to retail was supposed to be temporary. She needed a job and Lane Bryant was hiring. She figured it would let her make ends meet while she figured out what was next for her. But it turned out Rhoda really liked retail. She was good at it with her outgoing personality and she was soon promoted to manager. She didn't mind going in on her days off if things were busy or to help someone else or if someone called out. She really did love the job, and she was really appreciated and well-loved at the store. Rhoda was also planning her wedding. After her first marriage ended in divorce, she started dating a man named Stuart, and about a year into their relationship, they were ready to get married. On Saturday, February 2nd, 2008, the Lane Bryant store opened at 10 a.m., as usual, The store rule was always to have two people working at all times, but they were understaffed at the moment. So only one person was on the schedule, a part-time weekend employee, we are going to call Susan. Her name has been withheld for reasons that will be apparent later, but we are going to call her Susan because that is the first name that popped into my head. While Susan working the shift alone may have been something they'd let slide during the week, this was a Saturday, and it was the start of a big clearance sale. Knowing that they would be far too busy for one employee to handle, Rhoda went in even though she was supposed to have the day off. Rhoda and Susan expected a steady flow of customers, and within minutes of opening, two women had entered the store. It was shortly after the shoppers had entered that a delivery driver walked in, or at least someone pretending to be a delivery driver. Rhoda was unsure about this since they didn't have a delivery on the schedule. He talked with the women behind the counter for several minutes before he pulled out a gun. He yelled that he was robbing the store. He demanded cash from the register and the money from the women's purses, and their jewelry. He then forced Rhoda, Susan, and the two customers to the back room. He made them lie face down and bound their wrists and ankles with duct tape. While they were back there, two more customers entered the store, completely unaware of what was happening in the back. The man then forced them to the back room as well, and one of the women fought back. She was either punched or pistol-whipped. The man then bound them with the others. At some point in all of this, he did fondle one of the victims, but there was no other sexual contact past that. In addition to binding the women, the man had covered their heads so that they couldn't see, and the reports are that they were covered with clothing items he found within the store. It was possibly even underwear. After the second set of customers had come in, the man became agitated and somewhat distracted. It's possible having one or more of the women fight back had rattled him, but it doesn't completely make sense to me why he didn't just grab the cash and go at this point. Instead, he stayed in the store getting more ramped up. But Rhoda took a chance while he was distracted to make a phone call. She had a Bluetooth headset connected to her cell phone, so she was able to call 911 silently. The call was at about 10.44. On the call, Rhoda whispered, Lane Bryant, Tinley Park, and hurry." You can hear what sounds like a man's voice in the background. The police later isolated his voice, but the quality of the audio is not great. I can't tell what he's saying. Some think he's saying, be a hero, huh? Others say, cover up that head. Maybe he said both. Some think he's saying, I'm losing it. But we can definitely hear Rhoda asking them to hurry and the 911 operator telling her to stay on the line. Then the line goes dead. The released audio is not the entire call, so we don't know what else, if anything, is on there. What we do know is that the man caught Rhoda making the call, and he flew into a rage. With the police on their way, instead of taking this chance to run, The man took the time to shoot each woman in the back of the head as they laid helpless on the floor. Five of the shots were fatal. The sixth woman, the part-time employee we are calling Susan, moved her head at the last second. The bullet grazed her neck, but she played dead. The killer then fled the store. The four customers in the store that day who lost their lives were 37-year-old Connie Woolfolk, 34-year-old Jennifer Bishop, 33-year-old Carrie Hudak-Chiuso, and 22-year-old Sarah Safransky. Connie was a single mom to two boys ages 16 and 10. She worked as a mortgage broker. She felt passionate about economic and community development. She was a hard worker. She cared for her boys, including one with spina bifida, and worked on improving the community around her. She was universally loved. Connie had plans to go out with some friends later that day and had stopped in at Lane Bryant to pick up a new outfit for the night. Her brother told the media that there were signs Connie had been struck by the killer. Though the police have not given out a lot of information, it appears Connie was one of the women who fought back. Jennifer Bishop was a nurse who went by Jenny. She worked in the ICU at South Bend Memorial Hospital in Indiana. She had worked there for 13 years and had recently been promoted to charge nurse. She was great at her job and also great at parenting her three kids with her husband, Brian. Jenny was only in Tinley Park because her husband had a conference. He was attending at the Tinley Park Convention Center. She had tagged along, and she had received a gift card to Lane Bryant for her birthday several days before. The next victim, Carrie, and her husband, Tony, had been married for a little under two years. She worked as a school counselor, focusing on at-risk high schoolers and coached the girls' golf team. Carrie was known as an outgoing person and she made herself a part of whatever was going on in big and little ways. Tony was at home waiting on the cable company to come. So Carrie went to run some errands alone that morning. Carrie had made plans to meet up with some of her college friends for dinner in Chicago. So she called Tony while she was out and about, saying that she was going to swing by the bank and then stop at the lane Bryant. To buy a shawl to wear. Sarah was the youngest victim. She was raised in Oak Forest, Illinois. She attended Northern Illinois University, where she had recently graduated, having majored in finance. After school, she moved back home with her parents while working at a finance company in Chicago. Sarah had excelled in school and participated in a large number of extracurriculars. She was ready to excel at her new nine to five while still reserving her weekends for quiet nights at home with her boyfriend, Brian. Sarah had gone to Lane Bryant that day to look for some professional work clothes suited for the winter months. These four women and Rhoda were senselessly murdered for a total robbery take of an estimated $200 and some jewelry. The sixth woman, Susan, was a survivor, but we need to remember she was also a victim. The trauma she experienced cannot be put into words. As we get into the investigation, it is a good time to point out that the police have remained quiet about a lot of what they know. That happens in every investigation. But when we are looking back at the reporting on a case over a time span of 13 years, it can get hard to tell what is verified information from the police, what is verified but the source hasn't been named, so it may not be authorized information, what information has been possibly leaked, and also what are just inaccuracies that have crept into the reporting. We do know the police arrived very quickly there was an officer across the parking lot near the super target dealing with another call. So he made it to the Lane Bryant in less than two minutes of the 911 call. But even then, when he got there, the man was gone. And with the store being so close to the interstate, he could have gone anywhere at that point if he was inside a vehicle. After the responding officer entered the store and found the women in the back room, he radioed for help. Multiple police departments responded. They knew this was going to be a massive amount of work to search for the killer, process the scene, and track down witnesses. This is a shopping center. People come and go. They can be gone within minutes. Not even knowing that they saw something relevant and they would be nearly impossible to track down later. From what it sounds like, the police had a basic description of the shooter from both what Susan said before she was rushed to the hospital and from another witness. This other witness saw a man walking out of the Lane Bryant store before the police officer arrived. We know from Susan's account. That the only man in the store was the killer. And Susan's quick description and the witness's description sounded to be of the same person. Investigators knew they were looking for a black man with a stocky build in his 20s or 30s with cornrows and beads at the end of one braid. The shopping center was largely locked down as the police searched, and in that search, they found a man named Sean sitting in his car. He matched the vague description, as in he was a black man roughly the right age, and he had a stocky build and braided hair. But he was just waiting for his girlfriend who was shopping inside the super target. It would later be confirmed that they arrived at the shopping center after the shooting. Sean was held for over an hour, with the police asking him if he took the beads out of his hair and where was his gun and things like that. They really accused him. The important thing about bringing up Sean here, though, is something else they did. According to Sean, they looked at the bottom of his shoes, which makes me wonder if there was shoe print evidence at the scene, possibly from the killer stepping in blood. Sean was cleared and released, though. And in spite of helicopter and dog-led searches on both Saturday and Sunday, the killer was not found. According to the police, there was a lot of evidence left at the scene. We don't know what it was, but let's go through the little bit that has been maybe almost sort of confirmed. There have been reports that fingerprints and DNA were found at the scene. It's not clear if they've been conclusively linked to the killer or if it's just possibly his, or if being a public place, being a store, they were just overwhelmed with forensic evidence. We don't know. We do know that they found some shell casings, so the police knew they were looking for a 40 caliber Glock semi-automatic handgun. The gun was not found at the scene, nor was it found in the partially frozen retention pond behind the store. It wasn't found along the roadside, in trash cans, in wooded areas, or anywhere else surrounding the crime scene that was searched with a fine-tooth comb. It's very likely the killer took the gun with him, and if he did discard it, he did so when he was out of the area. But again, which way he went is unclear. There are highways taking you in any direction you want to go, pretty much right next to the shopping center. There were no security cameras inside the Lane Bryant or immediately outside the store. There were some in the parking lots of other stores like the Super Target. The police didn't stop with just surveillance in the shopping center. They went out farther than just that. They pulled any camera footage from a mile or two radius to see if they could find the killer leaving either on foot or in a vehicle. It is said that, for a few reasons, they believe he left in a vehicle, and one of those reasons is how quickly he left the area. The Target parking lot camera was the only video helpful enough for the police to release anything from it. They did have to enhance the footage and, well, enhance is a relative measure. It is grainy, blurry, distorted, whatever else you want to call it. But it is really pretty amazing because it's America's Most Wanted, the TV show, who made this happen. They funded the enhancement and went to a NASA scientist to get it done. It's something the Tinley Park police may not have had the funding or the connections to do, and America's Most Wanted stepped in to help. With the new America's Most Wanted series launching, I hope they do the same thing as they did with the original series. Not just talk about the cases and publicize them, which is important, but also use their resources to try to move these investigations forward. We will look at this footage in the after show on YouTube, but my descriptions will have to do for the podcast. What has been released is really just a series of time-stamped still images taken about a minute apart. Two vehicles of note are seen. Both show up around the same time. They're in the 1039 and then the 1040 frames. The first was a dark-colored SUV, and the second was a car, sedan-style. This was just a few minutes before the 911 call. The car pulled into a parking spot parallel with the storefront and a few spaces from the store. The SUV, from what it looks like to me, pulled into one of the spots immediately in front of the store so it's facing the storefront. It's also possible it was just kind of pulled over in the parking lot facing the store. At 1045, the car is gone, and at 1046, the SUV is gone. The 911 call was made at 10:44, and it's believed the women were killed shortly after that. So within a minute of the shooting, both vehicles were gone, and after only having been there for a short time. The police have been crystal clear that they don't know if these cars were witnesses who maybe fled in fear, maybe they heard the gunshots or Were these vehicles involved somehow? Being involved does make some sense. For one, in spite of all of the publicity on this case locally, neither driver came forward to say what they heard or saw. And lots of other people who were at the shopping center that day did, even people who reached out just to say they didn't see anything. Was one of the vehicles a getaway car? Was the other a lookout? It's conjecture, but that's what we have with unsolved cases. I know I sometimes downplay the role of speculation in telling or evaluating stories. I even criticize it at times. Sometimes, though, I need to check my attitude on that because not all speculation is the same. Speculation can go too far. It can start with an analysis of the evidence and then ripple out like when you throw a pebble in the water. By the time you get to that outer ripple, your theory is no longer based on the evidence, but rather it leans on previous speculation. And previous speculation is not fact. So we are going to speculate, but we're going to stay on that inner ring of speculation where we, and by we I mean I, am more comfortable. So because this footage is blurry, neither vehicle has been identified. Their involvement has not been ruled in or ruled out. I personally think it is more likely that one of the vehicles was the getaway car and the other was just a coincidence. The two cars were not parked in the same spot. They weren't parked near each other. They arrived and left at different times, even though it was within a minute of each other, And it looks like the car may have even left before the shooting happened, during the 911 call. Another thing is that there are other vehicles parked between that car and the front of the store. If they were a getaway car or they were a lookout, they didn't park in a very great spot to do either. I think the SUV is the vehicle that needs to be looked at the most since it was still there after the shooting for a very short amount of time. It was also parked closer to the front of the store. The only thing is, why did the vehicle pull up then? As a getaway driver, his punctuality was pretty poor. The shooter was in the store for 30 minutes before he even pulled up. And then it was another seven minutes where the killer was in the store for apparently no reason while the driver waited. If the shooter and the driver of the SUV had a coordinated plan, it doesn't seem like a really great one. I mean, they got away with it, so obviously it was good enough. But they only managed to get away within about 60 seconds because an officer arrived very shortly after they pulled away. A still of the black SUV from the security cameras has been released to the public, though the seven-frame sequence does give you a much better idea of the timing, even though the vehicle is still hard to make out the details on no matter what you're looking at. There was a witness who said they saw a red car speed out of the parking lot around the time of the shooting, which brings in another option for a getaway vehicle, but that one Could have been a coincidence. The black SUV seems to be the focus. The day after the shootings, the police released the names of the victims, but they held back that there was a survivor. It was later leaked, but the police insisted her identity needed to be kept secret and she was in protective custody for her safety. She was the only witness who saw the killer full in the face and could identify him. This was a man who executed five women, so there was reason to believe she would be in danger. To this day, her identity has not been released. The public was not happy with the lack of information that came out in those first few days. Even the hesitancy to announce that there was a survivor left people confused as to what was going on. Obviously, the police were holding back a lot, for investigative reasons, but it still left people feeling scared and uncertain and insecure about the safety of their town. The department did add extra patrols, both to help look for evidence and witnesses, but also to reassure the public. The public wanted a picture or an image of who did this so that they could stay vigilant, but even that seemed to take a while. In the broad scheme of things, it didn't, But in the moment, it certainly felt that way. The police assured everyone that a full description would be coming and that they wanted to make sure they got the most accurate information they could from Susan without pushing her too hard. After all, she had been traumatized. They didn't want to add to her re-traumatization and they also didn't want to influence her memory. On February 4th, 2008, a press release went out with the basic description of the man I mentioned. Black male, cornrows with one braid, with beads in it. They put his height around 5'9 and his weight at 230 to 260, but they would later increase the estimated height to being more like 6 feet tall to 6'2". Over the next few days, the investigators announced that the sketch was being worked on and would be released as soon as it was finished. Additionally, they added to this description. The shooter was clean-shaven. He had a receding hairline. He had three to five cornrows that were described as puffy, so I'm going to interpret that to mean thick. They also said he had a braid coming down the side, that was along his right temple, so between his cheek and his ear. At the end were four light green beads. The police reached out to hairstylists about the style to see if anyone remembered doing his hair. Because let's be honest, the second the hairstyle was announced, in the description, the man took the braids out. Maybe he even shaved his head. And that's if he even waited that long to alter his appearance so going backwards and checking to see who braided his hair was a good idea. But thick cornrows are not a terribly difficult hairstyle. I know teenagers who can do them not just on other people, but in their own hair as well. It's just as likely he did not go to a professional hairstylist to have this done. A description of his clothes was released at the same time as this enhanced description, He was wearing black jeans that had an embroidery and rhinestone decoration on the back pocket. The embroidered section resembled a cursive G. And if the police ever found that design on a specific brand of jeans, that's not been released. I did my own quick Google search and couldn't find anything. The design may not have been a G, but that's just to give us a basic idea of the shape of what it looked like. The man also wore a black jacket that came down below his waist, but was otherwise unremarkable. He was wearing a gray-knit hat, but Susan could also tell he had cornrows in his hair, thick ones, and that his hairline was receding. So he may have worn the hat back on his head, or he took it off at some point. There hasn't been anything I've seen saying that he took it off, or it was removed during the crime, but it is a possibility. Even without the sketch, though, this description brought in a lot of tips, and even more came in when the sketch was released. And the rewards offered didn't hurt either. Lane Bryant put up $50,000 for any tip that led to a conviction. Crime Stoppers offered $1,000 per murder victim for a tip that led to an arrest, and other rewards were put up by individuals and businesses, both big and small. The hope was that these rewards would get someone who knew something to come forward. And in part, that's because of what happened in another case that I did cover on Crime Lines that happened about an hour north of the Lane Bryant, and that is the Browns' Chicken Massacre. The cases would be compared on all sorts of levels. So as a refresher, the Browns' chicken murders were solved after nine years when someone came forward with information that she had that entire time. The police were hopeful with the Lane Bryant shooting that someone who wasn't involved had been told what happened and that the rewards would encourage them to come forward not two, three, 10 years down the road, but immediately. And the motive in the Lane Bryant shooting was also compared to that of Brown's chicken, a robbery gone wrong. When the man posing as a delivery driver pulled the gun, he demanded the women give him the money in the register as well as the cash from their purses. He never gave any hint that this was anything but a robbery. He didn't vent a grudge against Lane Bryant, the store, or Lane Bryant, the company, or anything like that. It's theorized that he picked Lane Bryant specifically because he knew he was likely only going to encounter women there, those he believed were more easy to overpower because nothing else about picking the Lane Bryant really makes sense. It's not a particularly expensive store. From my experience, most items cost about $20 to $80. So even if every customer paid cash, there wouldn't be a huge take in the register. It's possible a male criminal may not have realized that, but he would have known there likely wasn't much money in the drawer right after the store opened, just enough to make change. So one theory about why he struck in the morning when there wasn't that much money there was that he planned to keep going. He was going to rob customers as they came in and I guess just keep putting them in the back room. That would explain why he stayed in the store for 40 minutes, but then his plan was derailed when he realized Rhoda had called 911. Now, if that was his plan, that's a risky one. It would have been far easier to just wait until right before close and then get whatever was in the cash register after a day of doing business. So I don't see this as very likely. But I do keep going back to those 40 minutes. Why was he in the store that long? He wasn't trying to get Rhoda to open a safe. So why didn't he just grab the money he had and go? And why the ruse about being a delivery driver? From Susan's report, it lasted a few minutes. That gave her and Rhoda a lot of time to see his face. One article in the Claremont Sun said that Rhoda was even going to call another store because they weren't expecting the delivery and she wanted to clear up the confusion. Why did he go through this huge ruse? Why didn't he just storm in? He had a gun. Using the ruse meant he had to go in with his face uncovered, letting everyone see him. So did he always intend to kill the witnesses? I do think there is some valid questions here with the robbery gone wrong theory, and really the 40 minutes he was in the store is my sticking point. What was he waiting for? Was he waiting for something? Was he looking for something? Was he waiting for someone? Was he expecting something else to happen? But then Rhoda called 911 and interrupted whatever that was. The only explanation that makes any sense within the robbery gone wrong theory to me was that he was under the influence of drugs or he was under the influence of withdrawal, both of which could make it hard to concentrate and focus. It can also make it difficult to process time as its passing. It may even explain to some degree how he began the robbery calmly and then his agitation and confusion increased as time passed. The police did investigate, though, that this was more targeted than a random robbery. They did not just go robbery gone wrong and shut the door on other motives. They did look into all six of the women to identify any enemies or reasons someone would want them dead. While they looked into all of them, if any of them were the target, the most likely candidate would be Susan. She was the only one scheduled to be in the store that day. The customers all had stopped in while out and about, and Rhoda went in to help Susan because of the sale. It was supposed to be her day off. But Susan did not recognize this man, Neither did any of the other women, as far as Susan could tell, and the shooter never indicated he was looking for anyone specific, even while he chatted with them under the ruse of being a delivery driver. The second most likely target would have been Rhoda because she did work there, and if you didn't know her schedule, you could probably assume the manager would be there during a major sales event on a Saturday. And in early August 2008, six months after the shootings, the Chicago Tribune reported a bit more of what the police found when they looked into this angle regarding Rhoda. While this should not be construed as me saying Rhoda had enemies, Rhoda did leave her position as an associate pastor due to disagreements that may have had to do with the managing of finances. Then it was found through the cell phone records that a former member of the church was near the Lane Bryant store on the morning of the murders and placed a cell phone call near the time of the robbery. The pastor and some members had moved to Austin, Texas, restarting the church down there under a new name, so the police had to travel to Texas to question people. When they were asked about this lead, the police were quick to say that they hadn't found any links between the former member, the cell phone call, the robbery, the church, the shooting. But they sent 11 investigators to Texas to question 18 of Rhoda's acquaintances and friends. That ratio of 11 investigators to interview 18 people left me thinking that there was something specific they were following up on, rather than just a vague cell phone call. The pastor who was involved in the church at the time of the split said he could not imagine that a church squabble would have led to the cold-blooded murders of five women. And like I said, Susan and Rhoda weren't the only ones looked into. They were just the only ones who could have predictably been in the store at the time. The other four victims also had to be ruled out as the target, It seems that it was just a series of routine events, though, that put them each in the store that morning, and no one had any red flags in their backgrounds. So we are right back at the robbery-gone-wrong scenario. Even though I feel like I have some big and valid questions about this, I have to admit it's the most likely answer. In that same Chicago Tribune article that mentioned the investigators going to Texas, They also reported another lead along the robbery angle. In April 2006, two months after the Lane Bryant mass murder, there was another shooting, again of five people, in a robbery. Three men committed a home invasion on the south side of Chicago, about 30 minutes from the store. In that robbery, five people, ages 17 to 26, were killed. One of the men arrested... 27-year-old Michael King fit the basic description of the Lane Bryant shooter. Michael King denied that he was at the scene of the home invasion, let alone the Lane Bryant store, but he was convicted of the home invasion murders in Chicago. One of the only things that really links him as a possibility was that he owned a 40 caliber Glock but it was later figured out that he bought it after February 2nd, so after the Lane Bryant shootings took place. Of course, it does seem like a coincidence, which I think is the word of the day here, that Michael King would buy a gun of the same caliber after the killings. There was a question of if he bought this gun to replace the one used in the Lane Bryant murders that was then disposed of but that gets us a ripple or two of speculation away from the evidence. Another point against Michael King's involvement at the Lane Bryant was that the home invasion was targeted to some degree. He knew at least one of the people in the house, and he lived in the same area. He wasn't venturing outside of his comfort zone. The investigators have said that over the years, three solid suspects, all unnamed, have been developed and pursued, but none have led to an arrest. The Lane Bryant store never reopened. They waited out their lease, and then TJ Maxx moved into the space. Obviously, since we're sitting here 13 years later talking about it, this is a cold case, but it has been pretty much consistently worked on this entire time. In October 2016, the investigative team sent this to the VDoc Society, and this group is basically like a volunteer search team, except they search case files. They're all volunteers, and the members are criminologists, detectives, both active and retired, medical examiners, forensic experts, anyone you would bring in for an investigation. They are there, and they work for free. They do only work with law enforcement. They are not private investigators. They agreed to take on the Lane Bryant case, and the police said that the group identified a few different angles or paths the police could go down in the hopes that they would eventually solve this. The case was back in the news in a big way with the 10-year anniversary in 2018, and we saw the usual media that comes with that. The police had the sketch updated. They wanted it to look a little bit more lifelike, possibly even age it a little bit since it had been 10 years in the hopes that someone would recognize the killer, and it did generate dozens of tips. And over the years, as this case was growing cold and the speculation ripples kept moving out, it became harder to decide what speculation was connected to evidence and what was just conjecture. In one way, this thinking was helpful because it was asking the question, what are we missing here? And it got some people to consider some outside-the-box ideas. Some of the ideas were so far outside the box that that we're not going to get into them. But one of the most interesting ones to me was that the shooter may have been a woman. Susan identified him as a man, but how long was her interaction with him? We do know Rhoda talked to him about the delivery, as she was the manager. Susan was then taken to the back room and didn't see him much after that because, as far as we know, her face was covered. The voice on the 911 call sounds like a man, but that's not for sure. I'm going to play a clip of the voice because you'll hear that it doesn't sound like anything really specific, and I normally won't play unintelligible clips, but if someone does recognize this voice, that would be worth it. So let me play it now. Okay, to me, that sounds like a man, but again, it could be someone disguising their voice. The killer did have a large frame and was wearing a coat, which may have hidden some obvious signs that they were actually a woman, and by obvious signs, I mean boobs. Some even think the composite drawing shows slightly feminine features. And while I see where all this is coming from, and I actually think it is a good idea to question things like disguises in situations like this, I do think this was a man, and for one reason, I personally believe the authorities have the killer's DNA, or they have at least a partial profile. There have been mentions from the police of how technology with DNA is improving. They say that in reference to solving this case. So I think they have something. My assumption is that the reason the police have not publicly entertained the possibility that this was a female killer is because they know it's not because of the DNA. But I do like to hear that people were coming at this from different angles to try to get this case solved. Because as I record this, In March of 2021, we have no answers. The police are looking for a black man with medium to dark skin tone who is around six foot to six foot two. He would have been in the Chicago area on February 2nd, 2008, and possibly driving in an SUV. He had a large build. However, at the time, his weight was proportional to his height. He would be between the ages of 35 and 45 today. I will be going over the sketch, the CCTV of the car, the 911 calls, photos of the victims, and other information we talked about today on the Crime Lines YouTube channel that's linked in the description box. In the event you are a visual person and want to see some of these things, you can also find the Crime Lines YouTube channel just by searching Crime Lines True Crime on YouTube. If you have any information, you are asked to email lanebryant.tipline at tinleypark.org or call 708-444-5394. This information will be in the show notes. Thank you for listening. You can find Crime Lines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Crime Lines is also on YouTube where I post two to three true crime videos a week, including an occasional after show where we go over any visuals, from that week's podcast episode. Crime Lines is also on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. And if you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crime Lines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an occasionally funny history, mystery, and true crime podcast that I co-created and write for.